Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, and Jesus displays his authority in his teaching as king. And then he goes on in chapters 8 through 9 to display his authority in miracles, deeds of power, uh, displays of the coming kingdom, kingdom foretastes. That's what he's bringing about. And then he gives his second main discourse, his second main area of teaching in chapter 10, uh, commissioning the apostles. Even as John has preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And even as Jesus has preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Then Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim the same message and even gives them authority to do mighty works, to display foretastes of the coming kingdom. And that gets us through the end of chapter 10. And we move into this next narrative section, chapters 11 through 12. And what we've said is there's been enough clear teaching up to this point of who Jesus is, of his authority, of his power. The question is, how are people going to respond? How is this generation going to respond? And really what we find in Matthew 11 through 12 is a turning point, a hinge point in the book of Matthew We've already started to see some rejection of Jesus by his generation, by the scribes and the Pharisees, but it gets amplified and reaches a pitched fever, at least in an initial way, in Matthew 11 through 12. And so that's what we we see here. And the way it's introduced is it starts with these questions. Uh, We've been looking at these questions the last few weeks. The first question was by John the Baptist. Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, because remember what John is expecting. Remember his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven as at hand. It's drawn near. And with the kingdom drawing near, God's judgment is drawing near. The day of the Lord is drawing near. So you need to repent. And John is expecting judgment. And Jesus has spoken of judgment, but he hasn't enacted any judgment. And so John is confused. Is Are you the one who come? And what does Jesus do? He points to his deeds, his works. Not only what he said, but also what he did. And effectively, he's saying, John, look at Isaiah. I'm fitting, I'm matching the description. Keep trusting me. Keep trusting. And then last week, we entered this next section, or this this last section in 7 through 15, where Jesus switches direction. He's talking to the crowds. Remember the crowds? They're kind of in neutral territory, so to speak. Uh, If we have the disciples as committed to following Jesus, they've repented and entrusted themselves to Christ. They've turned allegiance from sin and self, and they've entrusted themselves to Christ, and they're following Christ. And then the other end of the spectrum, you have maybe the scribes and Pharisees as the quintessential enemies and opposers to Jesus. Right in the middle, you've got the crowds. They're not committed, but they like coming to Jesus. They like seeing his deeds of power. They like hearing him. But where are they at? Are they going to follow Jesus? And so he speaks to them. He spoke to them last week, and he asked them a question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And he's getting them to think about John the Baptist. They went out into the wilderness to see John the Baptist, and he affirms, yeah, you guys went out to see a prophet, and that's true, but more, but more. John was the figure in Malachi, the, the, the human messenger who prepares the way for the Lord, for the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, who was going to start the second exodus, drawing Israel back. And then that messenger of the Lord, who turns out to be Christ, is preparing the way for God himself to come in ultimate judgment. 
the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, as Malachi talks about him, he is to refine Israel to prepare for God's judgment. And remember Jesus' plea. He's getting him to think about this. He's getting him to think about, he's getting the crowds to think about John because he needs to call their attention to what is at stake. Where are you at in redemptive history? You are standing at a tipping point. You are standing at a tipping point. And he kind of, he says that, it culminates in verse 14. And if you are willing to receive, there's no it there in the original. It's just literally, if you're willing to receive. And that word for reception, we said in chapter 10 is well-defined, receive, receive, receive. Who's being received? Well, the messengers of the kingdom and the message of the kingdom. It's a really a synonym for repentance. And so what he's saying to that generation, to those crowds, they're saying, if you're willing to receive the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, then yes, John will be that Elijah character that Malachi described, and yes, the kingdom will come. But the big question is, is the generation, are the crowds going to receive? Are they going to repent? That is what is at stake. And we get the answer the initial kind of answer in the sections we see this morning. So the main idea for the text this morning that we're in is this. Repent as those who have tasted the kingdom, lest you experience God's fiercest judgment. That's what Jesus is calling his generation to. That's what Matthew was calling his generation to. And that's what the scriptures are calling this generation to. Repent as those who have tasted the kingdom, lest you experience God's fiercest judgment. Let's pick up in verses 16 through 19, and we're going to polish off. Remember we said there was those three questions? Well, here's the third question that Jesus initially asks. Remember the first question was, are you the coming one? John asked that through his disciples. Yes, Jesus is the coming one. Who did, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? You went out to see the Elijah-like character who is calling Israel to repentance, to prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. And now here's the third question. What was Jesus and John's generation like? What was Jesus and John's generation like? Look at verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? Now, that language of this generation is going to, this is the first time it shows up in Matthew, and you're going to see it again and again as you walk through the rest of Matthew. It's going to become a key phrase. So this is the first time it gets used. He's talking about the generation of those who heard John's preaching, of those who were hearing Jesus preaching, of those who are seeing his miracles. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to others. Uh, literally, that you might have in your script, uh, your Bible, it says playmates. Well, literally, it just says other ones, other ones. And so what we need to understand, Jesus is drawing a metaphor here. He's drawing a picture. And so we need to understand that picture to understand how he is he comparing that with his generation. So the generation is like children sitting in marketplaces calling to others. What's being called? So these are the children calling we played, a flute, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now, let's understand the picture before we talk about how Jesus is relating it to his generation. So here's the picture. The marketplace. Actually, multiple marketplaces are mentioned. So you picture the marketplace, 
In the marketplace in Jesus' day, that's where you go to conduct business, right? You buy and you sell. Uh, maybe other legal transactions are happening in the marketplace. So serious business by adults is happening in the marketplace. But then he's got this picture of children, you know, going in and out of the marketplace, playing around. And what are they doing? They're playing at games and they're playing at games. And what's happening, it seems like the picture is they're sitting in the midst of all this kind of adult business going on. And they're sitting and saying, hey, we're playing, you know, maybe, maybe they have a play flute of some kind. And like, hey, we're playing a flute. Hey, but you're not dancing. Why, why aren't you not dancing? Uh, we're playing the flute for you. Why aren't you dropping everything and listening to our tune and playing along with us? Why aren't you playing along with us? Or the other side of it, uh, we sang a dirge. Uh, so they're playing at a funeral. Uh, playing a flute, we're probably playing at a wedding ceremony. Playing a dirge, they're probably playing at a funeral ceremony, and they're saying, you didn't mourn. We're in the marketplaces. Everyone who's hearing them, hey, we're playing, we're playing with a dirge. We're playing funeral. Why don't you join us in playing funeral with us? And that's the picture. That's the picture. So it's not just that they're calling to other children. They're calling to everyone in the marketplace, and they're saying, hey, why don't you just drop everything that you're doing? Why don't you drop your business and listen to our tune?" Now, if you think about that, that's a silly picture, right? If the adults are, um, uh, uh, it's not that they don't want to play with kids, obviously, but they're going about their business, their daily business, they're making transactions, they're doing this sort of thing. That's silly for them to listen to, to drop everything and listen to the kids and play along with them, isn't it? And that's Jesus' point. Because see what, how he corresponds this to John and himself. Verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking. Now, you remember back in chapter 9, uh, Jesus has a feast in, uh, with Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew, the tax collector, and a lot of his friends, they come over for dinner, a big old feast. And uh, that's the backdrop, actually, probably of what Jesus is referring to here, both for him and John. But you remember in that scenario, some of John's disciples come up to Jesus' disciples and like, hey, why does your master not fast? Uh, but us and the Pharisees, us meaning the disciples of John, and the Pharisees, they fast. Why are we fasting? Why are we abstaining? And you guys aren't. And remember, why, why would John and his disciples abstain? Well, remember, what are they thinking about? They're thinking about the kingdom is right about here. The day of judgment is right about here. We need to mourn. What's the call? Repentance. Repentance involves mourning, mourning over sin, mourning over your individual sin, but in that broader scope, mourning over the sin of Israel, an apostate nation that's, that's not listening to God. That's why John went out to the wilderness to call people to repentance, because they, they had the outward forms, but they weren't a repentant people by and large. And so there's this mourning, there's this sobriety, because judgment is coming. And so... But notice what's going on here. So, so that's the mourning side, right? So that's the attitude of mourning, neither eating nor drinking. You're fasting. You're being abstaining. That's the attitude of mourning. But notice what the generation, corresponding to the children, say. He has a demon. What are they saying? He's aligned with Satan. John, John is out there proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The axe is laid at the root of the trees. Everyone who does not bear fruit, therefore, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And what is the generation, by and large, saying? 
Well, that's a morning tone, but it, that's a morning tune, but that's not what we want to hear. That guy's too sober. That guy's a downer, man. That guy's a downer. He's not, we, we need some more celebration. We need some more uh, lightheartedness. We're playing a flute right now. We're playing a flute right now, and John's not corresponding to that. Something's wrong with that guy. In fact, he's, he's insane. He's got a demon. He's aligned with Satan. And you can see the silliness and the capriciousness of that generation, and that's Jesus' point. And then we see how it corresponds with Jesus. The Son of Man, now remember the Son of Man language, that's, we talked about that at length, that uh, you can see through the scriptures, the Son of Man is always portrayed as a, a weak character. So you can look in Ezekiel, you can look in even earlier on in the scriptures, a weak uh, human being until you get to Daniel 7, in which case you have the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, who is exalted, but he also identifies with weak human beings, the ultimate king, the Davidic king, the Messiah. And Jesus, throughout, he's said this multiple times, he identifies himself as that Son of Man. He is that one. He is humble and identifying with humble human beings, and yet he is that one who will be exalted and sit before the Ancient of Days at the judgment, and who will execute judgment. But notice what he says. The Son of Man, referring to himself, came, and he came eating and drinking. And you remember, again, remember that, that, that scene of him going over to Matthew, the tax collector's house, and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, those who are uh, the outcasts of society, those who are known as sinful, and Jesus is eating with them. And uh, he's having this feast and this celebration. And he's not, it's not like he's, and we said this when we were looking there, it's not like he's saying, oh yeah, your sin's okay. But those people recognize that Jesus is the great physician who's come to heal their sinfulness. And they receive his message, they repent, they entrust themselves to Christ, and they're healed and changed. And he says, remember what he says to those who are asking, why don't you fast? Well, you can't fast if the king is here. You can't fast while the bridegroom is here. I'm here. I'm the king. And those who are receiving the message, they're receiving this message of salvation. They're receiving God's favor. It's a time of celebration and joy because I'm here. But notice how the, notice how the generation responds. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What are they saying? They're saying, you're too liberal. You're eating with the outcasts. You're eating with the sinful people. Uh, you shouldn't be doing that. You need a little more mourning, Jesus. You're, you're playing a flute. We're playing a dirge. You're misaligned with what we think you ought to be doing. You're misaligned with what you think we ought to be doing. Again, it's the silliness, the capriciousness of Jesus and John's generation. They want to set the terms. They want to set the tune. And neither John nor Jesus matched that. And notice how Jesus ends this. And wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, again, there's a picture here. There's a metaphor. So we need to understand the picture and then we need to understand what Jesus is relating to with that picture. So let's go back to the marketplace with the children. They're playing at uh, weddings and funerals, and they're playing these tunes, and they're expecting anyone in the marketplace to drop what they're doing and listen to their tune and play along with them. 
Well, in the analogy, John and Jesus are the adults conducting real business. They're conducting real business in the marketplace, in the nation. And what is the wise response when you hear children in a marketplace saying, drop everything and play our game? You don't drop everything and play their game. You don't listen to their tune. You go about your business. You go about the business of God. That's the wise response. The wise response was what John preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The wise response from Jesus was repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And notice that language of deeds. Remember, we started this section with John asking, he heard about the deeds of the Christ. What were Jesus' deeds? Preaching, preaching that message of repentance and faith, and doing these miraculous deeds, doing these deeds of power, these fortes of the kingdom. And even John, he didn't do miracles, but proclaiming, doing his deeds, baptizing, preparing the way, and proclaiming a message of repentance. And what does Jesus mean? Wisdom's justified. Well, people were listening to that message. Not the generation by and large, but there were people. There were people who repented, who entrusted themselves to Christ. There were people who were becoming disciples. There were people whose eyes were open to see that Jesus is the King. He is the Messiah. I will follow him. And he was justified. John and Jesus were justified. It's, it's, uh, it's not just proverbial. It's actually, when it says in the original, it says, and wisdom was justified by their deeds. It happened. What John and Jesus were doing in proclaiming their message and not listening to the tune of their generation was wise. People were repenting. People were being changed. And it's the same for Matthew's generation. Remember, there's the original context of Jesus is saying this about his generation. Well, it's still that generation when Matthew comes along. But remember who he's talking to with this gospel. He's talking to Jewish Christians and those who have embraced the Messiah, but their Jewish friends and neighbors, they have not, by and large, embraced the Messiah. And that Jewish generation is saying, why would you believe that Jesus is the king? He's a crucified Messiah. Listen to our tune and come, come back. Come back to true Judaism. Come back to the, uh, the true religion. That's the tune they're saying. Because Jesus was obviously not the Messiah. He was cursed of God on the tree. That's Matthew's generation. And what's the wise response? What's Matthew's audience wise response? Don't listen to the tune. Know the truth. Know God's evaluation of things and keep proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah. Keep proclaiming repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The message that was entrusted to the disciples in chapter 10 and like the generation of John and Jesus, our generation is childish, capricious, and silly with dire consequences. This generation says that mourning over sin is ridiculous. There's no such thing as sin. Conversion therapy is wrong. Any idea that, you know, Jesus is a nice guy. He'll give you some nice tips to live life, but he's certainly not king. He certainly doesn't have any claim on your life. And the idea that he's going to come again and restore the world and reign over the whole world as a benevolent dictator, that's ridiculous. We like Jesus being nice, but we don't like Jesus being king. 
Sin is not to be mourned over, it's to be celebrated. Sin is not to be mourned over, it's to be celebrated. Aren't the voices loud and constant in our culture? We hear it every day if you listen to any amount of news. And it becomes tempting to want to succumb to those voices, doesn't it? Because everyone's doing it. That's the message of our culture. Everyone is believing this. You guys are backwards. Get in line. Just listen to our tune. Just sing the song. And it becomes tempting to want to succumb to them and not follow Jesus as a disciple and as a kingdom citizen with kingdom righteousness. How are you going to survive? How are you going to survive that message of this generation? You'll survive the temptation to cave by reminding yourself of who Jesus is and his evaluation of this generation. How would Jesus evaluate this generation? Well, nicely enough, we have an example of that, of the spirit of Jesus inspiring the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. But Romans 1, 118. Listen for our generation in this. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. There is no fitting, more fitting to, uh, exposition of our generation. And what is God's evaluation? They are not only awaiting wrath, they are under wrath right now. What you see in our generation, in our culture, is not a generation culture awaiting wrath, as true as that is. It is currently under wrath. And how are you going to survive the temptation to cave to the message, to the narrative? Just listen to our tune. Just, just join us. It's okay. By remembering who is Jesus, who is God, and what is his evaluation of this generation? That's how you're going to survive. That's how you're going to do what John and Jesus did. They did not kowtow to their generation. They didn't listen to the tune. 
They did business for the king. They listened to what God would have them do, and they did it despite what the generation did because it was the wise course. And wisdom, you will be, it may not seem like it at the time. It's like, this doesn't feel like wisdom. It feels like folly. It feels that way. And yet that's how God works. It looks foolish in the eyes of men, but is wise in the eyes of God. And you might be here, and, and really, what is, what is our generation doing? Our generation is do, saying, it's trying to get the king of the universe to listen to my tune. I'm the king. The individual is king. And everyone deserves to bow down to me and my wants and my desires. And that's just stupid. You're talking about the king of the universe that, desi- that designed you. But here's the thing. We all start there. We all start there. We all start with that desire to be king. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. That's what every single human being since then, except for Christ, has done. Started, I want to be king. I want to control my destiny. I want to be the captain of my destiny. And I want God to follow my tune. And I want others to follow my tune and bow down and worship me. And the call for such An attitude is this. You need to repent of trying to get the king of the universe to follow your turn of life rather than submitting to him as king. If you repent and entrust yourself to Jesus, you will find your most joyful life in him and having him as your treasure. We are designed to worship. We are designed to be enthralled with who God is, to delight ourselves in his majesty and his kingship and to follow him. And it's counterintuitive because we think, I'm giving up everything But we are designed to be enthralled, to give up everything and to find our life and our meaning and our treasure and our satisfaction, our affections in Jesus as king. And so if you're here this morning trying to get the God of the universe to listen to your tune, you need to repent. You need to bow to the knee and you need to repent. So what was Jesus and John's generation like? It was like childish and capricious children trying to get John and Jesus and others to listen to their tune. And then Jesus transitions to this next section. It's very much tied with what he just said, but now he announces judgment in a firm way. And so we see that in verses 20 through 24. Woe to unrepentant tasters of the kingdom. Woe to unrepentant tasters of the kingdom. So, Jesus was just speaking, and then Matthew jumps back in in verse 20 as the narrator. So we jump back out to the narrator's voice in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works, the idea is deeds of power. The, The word just literally means powers, but the idea is deeds of power, miracles, where most of his deeds of power had been done because they did not repent. The idea of denounce, it's it's a reproach. Jesus is reproaching. Now, who is he speaking to? He's still speaking to the crowds, right? Those people in the neutral territory. He hasn't shifted from speaking to them. He's still speaking to them. He's still speaking to them. Why? And he's he's speaking to them, but he's denouncing. Maybe some of them come from these cities he's about to, to denounce. Probably they do. But why? Why is he doing this? Well, because, like Andre mentioned a couple weeks ago, the pronouncement of judgment by God is a mercy. 
It's a mercy because when judgment is announced to you, it's always, God is always saying, but you can repent, but you can repent and avoid God's judgment. But notice what he says here in verse 20. They be, he began to, this is Matthew saying what Jesus is doing. He began to denounce the cities where the majority, so the majority of Jesus' miracles and what we've seen so far in Matthew, they have happened in the cities he's going to mention. Only a few cities, only a few cities. He's done many, many mighty works. Here for Capernaum, you could look back at chapters 8 and 9, and you could see that a lot of what he did, he did in Capernaum. And he did most of his mighty works, most of his deeds of power. He showed the foretaste of the kingdom, the teasers, the trailers of coming attractions of the kingdom to these cities, and he's denouncing them. Why? Because they did not repent. That's been the message all along from Jesus to John to his disciples. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. How is it drawn near? Well, through the preaching, through the personnel of Jesus and his disciples, and through the powers, right? Through these miracles, these foretastes. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's not there yet, but it's, it's near. It's pressing itself violently like we talked about last week. And notice the past tense here. Catch this. Because they did not repent. Meaning what? They had their shot, and it's over. They didn't repent. Now, the people Jesus is still speaking to, as far as individuals, there's still a chance. That's why he speaks so strongly. He's trying to shake people and say, wake up, repent. And so that's why he says what he says. So verse 20 really sets the stage for what Jesus is going to do in verses 21 through 24. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Now, the idea of woe, it's a very Old Testament prophetic thing to say. If you were to go back to the Old Testament and they say Isaiah, you would hear this sort of language, woe, meaning what? Judgment is coming and it is distressing and fierce. Woe to you because of what you have done. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Now, where are those cities? He's going to mention Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. They're within a few miles of each other. They almost form a little triangle right at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, right where the Jordan kind of comes into that Sea of Galilee. So they're within a few miles of each other. And basically, this is Jesus' home territory. Not only Jesus, but the apostles. Uh, some of the apostles, their hometown was Bethsaida. And so these are, these are like the hometowns, the base of operations of Jesus' ministry in the north. They've had the most miracles. They've heard the message the most. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Why? For if the mighty works, the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, why does he bring up Tyre and Sidon? Tyre and Sidon, they're to the north and right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But what you have to understand is Tyre and Sidon, they were mentioned a bunch in the Old Testament prophets. You can look at Isaiah, you can look at Jeremiah, you can look at Ezekiel, and Tyre and Sidon are always called out. Let me give you an example. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel uh, 26. Ezekiel 26. Actually, Ezekiel 26, 27, and 28 are all calling out Tyre and Sidon. They're usually paired together. 
But just, just let's see what Tyre was like so we understand what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. So Ezekiel 26, Ezekiel 26, verse 1. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Yahweh came to me. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It is swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord Yahweh, and she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. And it goes on. Um, We don't have time to read all of it, but you could read later. And essentially what Tyre is called out for is you are arrogant and you are opposed to the people of God. You are arrogant and you are opposed to the people of God. And so by comparing, back in Matthew, by comparing Chorazin and Bethsaida, who are Jewish hometowns around the edge of Galilee, they're full of Jewish people that that, uh, Jesus has been preaching to, that the apostles have been preaching to. What is he saying? He's saying, Chorazin and Bethsaida, you are as arrogant and opposed to the people of God in your response as Tyre and Sidon. And he's saying, look, if, if the mighty works, the deeds of power, let's, let's, let's do a thought experiment. Let's pretend that Tyre and Sidon didn't get destroyed, and let's pretend I had started my ministry, Jesus speaking, you know, that Jesus had started his ministry in Tyre and Sidon. Let's start the stopwatch at the same time in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Tyre and Sidon. Well, let me tell you this, maybe, maybe Jesus has been ministering maybe about a year, several months, at least in Galilee. Let's run the stopwatch. Well, the stopwatch would have been uh, stopped a long time ago for when they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes because of the deeds of power I did in your midst. I'm giving you clear revelation. I'm giving you clear foretaste of the kingdom. And they would have repented, and you're not. What's he doing he's showing that you you guys have had clear revelation again and again and again and notice what he says in verse 22 but i tell you nevertheless i tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for tyre and sidon than for you what is he talking about he's talking about the people There's a future day of judgment for all people, all people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And yes, we do see specific historical examples where God executed judgment on a people and a place. But those people who are in that that place are still awaiting the judgment seat of God. And so on that day, the people of Tyre and Sidon will be there, the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida, and we will be there all at the same time. And you notice with Chorazin and Bethsaida, in the narrative in Matthew up to this point, we, you know, Jesus has warned his disciples about, hey, remember chapter 10? You're going to be handed over. You're going to be persecuted. It's going to happen. But we really haven't seen that actually happen yet. All that's happened is that people have said, hey, look, Jesus is doing miracles. That's cool. Hey, look, Jesus is saying stuff. That's cool. I'll, I'll listen. I'll, I'll, I'll see what he's doing and... 
What does their lack of repentance look like? Doing nothing. That's all it takes to not repent, is to do nothing. It doesn't take high-handed, arrogant opposition like Tyre and Sidon, although that, that could be the case. All it takes is doing nothing. Of hearing Jesus, of seeing the, the, the presentation of the kingdom, the kingdom powers, and doing nothing. That's nice. No, I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to listen. Such a response will have a greater judgment from God than from those who had less revelation and less miracles shown to them. It says the same thing about Capernaum, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, now remember Capernaum and, and chapter four, in chapter 4, Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and he basically adopted it as his hometown and his home base of operations for ministry in the northern part. And so Capernaum, again, if you were to look at chapters 8 and 9, he did a lot of his miracles, raising the dead, cleansing people, all those things he listed uh, at the beginning of the chapter, he, he did them in Capernaum. They, the, you, can, you can look at it and count how many miracles. It's, in, it's at least probably about a dozen that he's done in Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Now, actually, that is Old Testament prophetic language, too. Turn to Isaiah 14. Turn to Isaiah 14. In Isaiah, you, in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you get these sections where God is, just like Jesus is doing, he's denouncing other nations. So Jesus is denouncing his own people, but... Um, and that happens in the prophets too, but, but he, you get these, these snapshots of denouncing other nations. Well, here we get um, the, the, the people of Babylon, the people who are ultimately going to carry Israel into exile. And this is about 100 years before that, but they're denounced. And here they're denounced in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, 3. When Yahweh has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you are made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So Israel is going to sing a taunt song against Babylon because of how they've oppressed them. And notice what they say. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. Yahweh has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol, which is the equivalent of Hades in the Old Testament, beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, now listen to this, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
but you are brought down to Sheol. You were brought down to Hades, to the far reaches of the pit. And it goes on. But what is Jesus saying back in Matthew 11? He's saying that, Capernaum, you have the arrogance of saying, I'm going to be exalted to heaven. That's the kind of arrogance that you have. And not just arrogance, but opposition to the people of God. By Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum not responding in repentance, they're threatening all of Israel because of their pride. And what did their pride look like? We've already said it. Not necessarily vicious opposition, but no thank you. No thank you. I like the miracles. I like what you have to say, Jesus, but I'm not going to follow you as king. And what does Jesus say? For if the mighty works, the deeds of power done in you, have been done in Sodom. Okay, let's remember Sodom. Now we got another city. What is Sodom known for? Genesis 18 and 19. Arrogance, uh, but prime, Ezekiel says arrogance, and you had a lot of money, and you didn't care for the poor, but first and foremost, Genesis 18 and 19, rampant homosexuality, rampant homosexual perversion. It's full of homosexual perverts. And we know how that ended up for Sodom, right? Fire rained down from God in an act of judgment on that city and on that place. Notice what he's telling. He's saying, if the, the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. The implication is, let's just, let's just pretend for a minute, it didn't happen, but let's just pretend that I was back in Sodom and I'm proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, and I'm giving the same foretaste of the kingdom that I'm giving to you, they would have repented. All those homosexual perverts in, um, in, uh, in Sodom, they would have repented, and you didn't. Verse 24, Nevertheless, I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment. There's the day of the Lord language. For the land of Sodom than for you. Again, the people of Sodom still await the future judgment. Uh, we will all be there at the judgment seat. Capernaum, Sodom, us. And who gets the fiercest judgment? The people who had the clearest message and the clearest signs. It's not the homosexual perverts that are going to get the most judgment on the day of wrath. It is the people who have heard the truth and not responded to it, who have heard the truth so clearly again and again, who have seen the the, the kingdom power so clearly and yet have not changed. That's all it takes. Not repenting is not necessarily hardened rejection. It's as easy as doing nothing. It can be nice. Non-repentance can be nice and quiet. No, thank you. I like Jesus. He's a nice guy. I like some of his principles, but he's not my king, and I'm certainly not going to live my life. I'm not going to orient my whole life around him. Clearly hearing the message of the gospel of the kingdom and sampling the power of the kingdom and yet doing nothing, not repenting and following Jesus, will earn God's fiercest judgment. There are degrees of punishment in hell. And the fiercest judgment will be for those who have heard the truth and sampled the works of God 
and yet have not repented and followed Jesus. Let's, put it, let's, let's bring it to our generation. Let's bring it to our generation. Those who sit in church each week, who sit in the pews each week and nicely do nothing in terms of repentance, faith, and following Jesus will suffer a greater judgment than the most atheistic, ardent LGBTQ activist. That's what Jesus is saying. All you have to do is sit here, hear the message each week, week in and week out. And friends, we, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. I have proclaimed the gospel. I have proclaimed it today. I will keep proclaiming it every week. But the more you hear it, and the more you see what God is doing in this body, he is transforming lives in this body. We can see it. People loving one another, being unified. You're going to see it in the three baptisms we're about to have. People from a 94-year-old man down to a 20-something-year-old gal. That doesn't happen. That's God working. That's the power of the kingdom at work through the Spirit. And you sit here each week. If I don't know your hearts. God knows your hearts. But if you're that person who sits here week in and week out, you're going deeper and deeper and deeper into judgment unless you repent. You're gonna, it's going to be worse than pick the person that you think is the grossest, nastiest sinner you can think of. It's going to be worse for you because you have clearer revelation. That's how God's judgment works. In this local church, this local church is a kingdom embassy. You hear the clear presentation of the gospel. You've seen the powers of the kingdom in terms of changed lives. You have no excuse. And let's think about this. Well, what if by God's grace, and it's only by God's grace, that anyone repents? It's a miracle of God. And the miracle of the Spirit of God working in hearts that changes anyone. Jesus is actually going to talk about that in the next section that we're in in Matthew. That it's only God who gets to reveal the Son. So it's those of us who have repented, we have nothing to be proud of. We have nothing to boast in. It is only and sheerly God's grace, his sheer sovereign grace that he opened your eyes, that he opened my eyes. But here's the reality and why we keep saying this. We preach the gospel each week. Why? Because the gospel is not just something that we take and leave on the shelf. It's something we need to persevere to the end. You cannot let down your guard if you're in Christ. You must persevere by grace and repentance and faith and following Jesus to make it to the end. So the call is, if, if you're not in Christ, do repent. Do entrust yourself to Jesus. Do follow him as your disciple. Go public with your faith as these folks are about to go public with their faith in the baptismal. But then also this, keep Keep repenting. Keep turning your allegiance from sin and self and entrusting, and keep entrusting yourself to Christ and keep following him and keep being public with your faith. We need the gospel to make it to the end. Judgment is, proclaiming judgment is mercy because what is God trying to do? What is Jesus trying to do? He's shaking his generation by the shoulder saying, wake up, wake up. God is coming and you don't want to be accountable to the kind of knowledge that you have and haven't repented on the day of God's wrath.
repent as those who have tasted the kingdom. We've all tasted the kingdom here. Not here yet, but we've tasted it. Repent as those who have tasted the kingdom, lest you experience God's fiercest judgment. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You know what is right and what we need to hear. And Lord, none of us, all of us start in that state of wanting to be our own lords, our own masters, kings and queens of our own destiny, but that's not how you designed us. You designed us to be satisfied in you, to be steward kings and queens under your rule, under your care. And Lord, it is only by your mercy and grace that I stand here, that any that are in Christ in here this morning, that we stand here by these three that we're about to baptize, it's only by your grace and your work. And Lord, I just pray that none would be in here this morning that would go away. Lord, that you would draw them, that they would talk to the person who brought them, talk to me or Jim or Steve. But Lord, please work. Please work, Holy Spirit, we ask and we plead. We love you. We're thankful for you. And we ask that you would, you would do business. And Lord, use us. Use us to faithfully proclaim the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Help us not to listen to the tune of our generation, but to remember who you are and to remember what you have done, and to remember your evaluation. Lord, we're exiles, we're waiting, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and reign as king over all. Bless this time now as we seek to honor you um, uh, through baptisms. In your name, amen.